Radio advertising is good. Why should you advertise on the Tan Talk Radio Network, AM 1340? Well, it's simple. We are a local radio station with local shows that target our local communities and local listeners. We have a variety of shows that cover a multitude of informative and interesting topics, such as automotive and boating, real estate and finance, health and medical, politics and law, sports and fishing, pet care, and more. While we are even home to Imus in the Morning, we also have shows about comedy, food and dining, religion, fashion, local community events and activities, and a variety of music. Talk radio provides a listening format that appeals to a large cross-section of people. Whether you are in your car, at work, at home, everyone has a radio. And we are streamed live on the internet. And past shows are podcasted so you, the listener, can play back your favorite shows over and over again. The possibilities are endless. So that, my listeners, is why you should advertise on the Talk Radio Network, AM 1340. Listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports Inc. 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years' experience with classic, vintage sport and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsports Inc. 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Golf Street Motorsports, Inc., 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340. If you like golf, enjoy affordable golf at Magnolia Valley Golf Club, located on Massachusetts Avenue in Newport Ritchie. Play for as little as $15 after 2 p.m. The club has two beautiful courses to choose from, an 18-hole championship, par 72, plus another nine-hole executive par 33. Join their open leagues on Wednesday afternoons at 4 and Sunday mornings at 8. Call 727-847-2342 for tee times or visit their website, magnoliavalleygolfclub.com. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. Here's looking at you, kid. Play it once, Sam. For all time's sake. I don't know what you mean, Miss Elsa. Play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Round up the usual suspects. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Okay, guys, you are tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. This is a live radio show, so run your computers and, uh, what is it, Google, tantalk1340.com, and you can see us waving in the studio as usual. I have a guest with me this evening. I've got uh, Chris. Hey, how are you, Robert? Thanks for having me on the show. Sure. Uh, We'll get to Chris in a little bit, because Chris is going to tell about this fantastic auto auction he's got prepared for us, or got coming up here in the fall, right? Yeah, I sure do. Uh, October 14th and 15th, we're going to be at the fairgrounds with a real exciting collector car auction. Super. Uh, now, that happens to be the same weekend as the... Uh, National Street Ride Association. Okay. Yep. Great. Yeah, you'll meet. 
Go ahead, keep going. Yes, their annual meet. Uh, this year there'll be about 1,400 cars there. Last year they had about 30,000 people on the fairgrounds uh, during that event, and we're looking forward to being part of that show with our auction and uh, having a great event. Real exciting time. Super. Okay, we'll get back to Chris in a second. And then, uh, hey, Sad, how you doing tonight? Good. How's he's, it going? He's hanging in there. That's good. Well, hey, you know, if you guys tuned into our show last week, you know that we had Pete Chaporis on from uh, SoCal. Well, this week, and it wasn't planned initially this way, but it kind of kind of worked out. It's kind of like, let's call this part two. We actually have a special guest tonight. Normally, I don't reveal the guest until later in the show, but we've got Alex Exidius coming on the show. They original founder of SoCal Speed Shop. So we're really excited to have him on the show. And again, like you guys know, if you get listen to my show on a regular basis, you know that I play clips and music that are basically more along the lines of the genre and the, uh, let's just say, the vintage of our special guest for the evening. So hence, that's one of the reasons why we played some of the clips from uh, Casablanca, because he likes the movie. We've got some uh, Frank Sinatra music coming on. And we've got uh, Artie Shaw. That's it, right? Just coming in later? Okay. So without... Uh, Let's, without keeping you guys in further suspense, let's just go ahead and roll that next song real quick. This is actually from a movie, uh, Robin and the Seven Hoods. I don't know if you remember the movie. came out in the early 60s. I certainly do remember it. It's one of my favorites. It has a, a large array of old-time yeah. actors and actresses. In. Sammy Davis Jr. was in there. Dean Martin. Everybody. Robinson, Dean yeah. Martin. They were all in there. The good guys. Okay, enjoy the music. You're riding high in April, shot down in May. But I know I'm gonna change that tune When I'm back on top, back on top in June I said that's life And as funny as it may seem Some people get their kicks Stomping on a dream But I don't let it let it get me down Cause this fine old world It keeps spinning around I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet A pawn and a king I've been up and down and over and out And I know one thing Each time I find myself Flat on my face I pick myself up and get back in the race. That's life. That's life. I tell you, I can't deny it. I thought of quitting, baby, but my heart just ain't gonna buy it. And if I didn't think it was worth one single try, I'd jump right on a big bird. And then I'd fly I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet A pawn and a king I've been up and down and over and out And I know one thing Each time I find myself laying flat on my face I just pick myself up and get back in the race Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork. 
or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends Corey, Jed, and Kurt at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radiant Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach. Located at 333 South Gulfview Boulevard. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. So stop by and visit my friends, Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know, you might get a free drink. That's Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I got a friend of mine. I got Chris sitting in with tonight, and then we got our special guest coming on in a few minutes, Alex Exidius. I'm really excited. This is the main guy, the original hot rodder that started the SoCal Speed Shop in 19, I guess, 30, 46, 1946. But anyway, real quick, some updates. Of course, everybody knows it's Wednesday, so it's open mic night at Naughty Nancy's. So if you want to go over there and play guitar, play your harmonica, play some cymbals, play any kind of musical instruments, even tell jokes, give uh, Naughty Nancy's a call. That's right here behind the studio off of uh, Eldridge Road. We're a quarter of a mile north of Drew Street off Eldridge. I guess it's a quarter of a mile north on the left. Anyway, it's right on the trail. Her number is 446 446 3717 at 700 Eldridge Street. Also, don't forget to go check out, of course, tomorrow night is Thursday. Thursday nights we have cruise night at, what is that place called? Uh, Quaker Steak Lube down on 49th Street in Clearwater. Okay, everybody check that place out. And then around 7 o'clock, we're all going to gather with the Tampa Bay Cruisers. We're going to head out to the, now last week I said it wrong. I think it's a Twisted Marlin in San St. Pete Beach. So some sort of a Twisted Fish place down there. Of course, I'm not into seafood. I'm a steak lover. So anyway, join the rest of us. We're all going to hang out down there. We're going to go cruising down there. Um... We'll have some pretty cool cars. And then also, every Saturday night, okay, don't forget to check out Sneaky Pete's Car Show. And it's called Sneaky Pete's because that's the name of his little pub, or his little, uh, it's called Sneaky Pete's Scoops and Subs. It's kind of like a little ice cream sub shop. It's a cool place. The address is 5507 38th Avenue North. That's Pinellas Park, 5507 38th Avenue North. Phone number, 727-343-3030. 727-343-3030. That's Pete's, excuse me, Sneaky Pete's Scoops and Subs Car Show every Saturday night. Starts at 5 o'clock to 9. So be sure and uh, hang out. Matter of fact, if you go down to uh, Quaker Steak and Loop tomorrow night, you will find out all the info. All right, back to Chris. Chris, tell us a little bit more about your auction that's coming up uh, this fall. Well, the auction is going to be held at the fairgrounds this coming October 14th and 15th. We're going to have about 250 of the finest collector cars from the state of Florida and across the country. Super. And it's going to be a great uh, event, and we hope that uh, everybody turns out. 
What's the, what it, what's it going to cost me to come in there and just kind of visit and roam around? Uh, it's ten bucks to get in, and uh, if you come with someone else, you could get a, a ticket for, for an additional ticket for only five dollars. So fifteen dollars for two people. Super. Now, are you going to have, for example, let's say I want to consign my car? What's it going to cost me to consign my car there? Well, we have two different ways for you to consign. If you're willing to let your car be sold with no reserve, you can be it in as little as two hundred dollars. Wow. And uh, if uh, you're going to have a reserve, it'll be four hundred dollars. Okay. Now, what if I'm? What do I pay if I want to buy a car? What's my buyer's fee going to be? Uh, Eight percent of the final hammer price. Okay, super. Now, let's say, how do they? If they want to get in touch with you and want to list some cars or, or, con, or uh, I guess you could call consign. Yeah, sure. How do they get car? a hold of you? Listen, you got to visit our website at uh, crowncollectorcars.com, uh, or they can call me at eight five 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 crown five five crown eight five. Eight five 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 two seven six nine six. Okay, so it should be a pretty good show because it's going to be tied in with the Street Rod National Show. There should be tons of people, tons of cars, and we're going to have maybe some special guests there for you, aren't right. we? We're, we can't we can't really reveal that yet, but we're working on some really major guests. And uh, one thing I'd like to say is that we are one of the best things about being involved in the collector car auction business is when we get together and we. Uh, do an event for charity. And everybody has heard of Daryl Gwen mm-hmm. and, uh, of course, the ex-drag racer that uh, was injured. Was injured. Uh, well, his foundation gives away wheelchairs, and we're going to be auctioning off a car for his foundation there. It'll be a great uh, a great thing. It brings tears to everybody's eyes every time. And uh, it's really, a, really one of the best things that I do with uh, the auction. Super. In fact, I'm talking to Pete Chaporis at SoCal, and I'm going to see maybe he can donate a one of his custom-made SoCal Fender guitars that he does, and maybe we'll be able to auction that off, too. That'd be awesome. Super. All right. Make sure to check out the auction. It's, again, uh, again April. It's at April. No, it's, no, it's in October. October. I'll be okay. Uh, this coming <laughs> October, 14th and 15th. Okay. Hey, let's roll that next song real quick in the clip, and let's get our guest on the show.
listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great pizza shop right here in downtown Clearwater, Bro's Pizzeria, voted number one in the city of Clearwater. They're located at 547 South Fort Harrison Avenue. They have great New York-style pizza, as well as delicious lasagna, spaghetti and meatballs, manicotti, linguine. And if you're in the neighborhood for lunch, they have great hot and cold sandwiches and appetizers. So call 727-441-6025 for takeout and deliveries, or stop by for a veal parmesan dinner and a nice glass of vino. That's Bro's Pizzeria. Check out their website and watch my friend Olti create a spectacular pizza before your very eyes. What would you like on your pizza? Call Bro's Pizzeria, 727-441-6025. That's 727-441-6025. And tell them Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. As most of you know, I'm in the car business, and often I need cars towed. Well, Kotaka's Towing has all the trucks and equipment to meet your needs. Whether it's long distance, short distance, or just around the corner, they can get it done. Kotaka's Towing, located at 1141 Court Street in Clearwater. Also, they have a full-service repair and body shop to meet all your automotive needs. So give my friends Lefty and Joey a call at Kotaka's Towing at 727-447-1952. And be sure to mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you might get a discount. darling, you're such a child. You think that by saying I'm sorry, all the past can be corrected. Here, take my handkerchief. Never in any crisis of your life have I known you to have a handkerchief. Red, Red, where are you going? I'm going to Charleston, back where I belong. Please, please take me with you. No. I'm through with everything here. I want peace. I want to see if somewhere there isn't something left in life of charm and grace. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. I only know that I love you. That's your misfortune. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> oh, okay, we're back. You know what? I'm just wondering if that's one of the best lines, you know, that one or the the one from Casablanca, you know? I think this is the beginning of a new friendship or something to that effect. Beautiful friendship. Beautiful friendship. Yeah, there we go. Anyway, hey, it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. Now, not only is it World War II decorated, I guess, you know, decorated, uh, World War II uh, veteran, but he is the one of the original hot rodders, one of the original dry lake guys. Uh, he set some phenomenal speed records. He sent a set a really, really. He was part of the original group that set the real SoCal hot rod scene. In fact, the name of his business. He is the founder of SoCal, the SoCal Speed Shop. And I'm delighted this evening to introduce Alex Sidious to our radio show. Alex, are you there? I certainly am, and I'm just amazed that you could find some of that old music and the old line from uh, Gone with the Wind that's incredible. <laughs> I did that for you, and it took yeah. a little time, but you know what? I remember those when I was a kid. They were great movies. They're fantastic. Yeah, that, that was the, the Catholic Church band Gone with the Wind because he said damn at the end. Can you imagine nowadays you go to the movie and you hear a lot more than damn, but uh, in those days that's how strict we were about language and and stuff like that in the movies. 
Wow, amazing. So, Alex, how you been? Tell us a little bit about, uh, tell, us, tell us how it all began with you and the cars. Well, the car thing started probably, uh, well, I know it started before the war because I, I, I built a couple of cars before the war, before I went to service. And uh, so in the late 30s, early 40s, uh, hot rodding really began to grow in Southern California. And uh, it was a major hobby. And uh, then when the SCTA was formed, the Southern California Timing Association, the times the cars at the dry lakes, even today, all these years later, when they formed in 37, it kind of gave uh, hot rodding a legitimate group. A bunch of clubs that were in the area, car clubs that were in the area at the time, joined. Uh, I was a member of the Glendale Sidewinders. I joined after the war, but they were one of the original clubs of the SCTA and so now they had rules and regulations and some safety stuff and and things so the the dry, the dry lake racing took off and a lot of guys started to race their cars up there the traditional hot rod in those days was a car that you drove around town all week to work and school and you took it up at the dry lakes and took the windshield off and the headlights off the fenders, of course, were already off, and uh, you raced it, and then you put them all back on, drove home, and used it all week long. So that was the original traditional hot rod, a, a car that you could use both to run at the dry lakes and to go to work every day. You were telling me, too, that back in those days, I mean, like, I didn't know this until years later, um, but you guys used to race for a mile, basically. We always think of racing like in quarter-mile or eighth-mile turns, but you guys used to race back then for a mile before you went for the land speed records, correct? Well, the lakes were so ideal. That's part of the reason that Southern California was the birthday of, I mean, the birthplace of hot rodding and stuff, is that we had these dry lakes. Before the war, we had Muir Rock, which later became Edwards Air Force Base, and they kicked us off that lake, but there were still several other lakes, and, and we went over to El Mirage Dry Lake, and the, the point of the, of the mile long was because we had so much room. Uh, we didn't, in those days, there weren't quarter-mile tracks or anything. Drag racing was, was done mostly on the streets with kids racing from one signal to another and stuff. But it, everything was land speed, if you want to call it that, because that's what it was. You, and we had two or three miles long courses. Well, that, that you wouldn't race on that surface for a quarter of a mile, you wanted to go as far and as fast as you could go. So that's why hot rodding began as a as a land speed effort and still continues to this day at Bonneville, of course. Something else you were telling me, too, is that I didn't know this, but sometimes you guys would race four and five or six cars wide at a time? Before the SCTA was formed, they had several different uh, groups that had a timer and they would charge you a dollar or whatever it was at that time. Don't forget, this was the Depression, so they could have maybe just charged you a quarter. But they'd charge you to run your car, and then a bunch of the guys would get together on the side, and as I said, there was so much room, a flat, dry lake bed, that you could go almost in any direction in those days. So they kind of all, what amounted to drag racing, only it would be a mile or two long just to to see who would win. So, But the, the... the SCTA stopped that because it was kind of a dangerous practice to do. And then they went back to single cars, running one at a time, which they still do today. How did the uh, how did the uh, endurance or the uh, the high speed thing 
come about? Was that something that was going on at that point in time? I mean, like, for example, like Bonneville is the one most people can identify with. Did that take place there at the Dry Lakes, or was that just something that was unique to Bonneville? You know, where you would go for, like, we were going for land speed records, basically. Well, we had our own records, of course, and, of course, we had a lot of classes, roasters and modified roasters, which would be like a a Model T chopped and, and lowered over the, the frame channeled and stuff like that and then the, what we call streamliners and modifies they look more like a, a sprint car or a midget with a, a pointed tail so each class had its own record and uh, before the war they there was a, a young guy named Bob Rufi that built a, a little streamliner thing in fact looking back on it now it looked very much like the belly tanks of the future because the driver sat out in front and the engine was behind him and uh, he ran over 140 miles an hour which was the record before the war and that was in those days that was incredibly fast most most 32 roaster hot rods or 29s were probably running around 100 to 110 some of them were a little faster than that but like Vic Edelbrock and people they were probably right around 120 but that 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 continues to be a big, big thing in Southern California is, is that type of racing. The but, records now, well, they're as fast as you can go on the dry lake surface. The dry lake is basically a hard mud that gets solidified during the summer, and it, it really becomes very hard, but it still breaks up. It's like it's still dirt, and uh, you can't really go fast at the lakes. They still go over 300 up there, but it's not like Bonneville where you get better traction. What kind of distances are they doing at the at the dry lake? I think compared to Bonneville, Bonneville is, is pretty much like an endless course, track, right? It's like uh, is it, it's more than a mile, isn't it? It's yeah, like, it's well, Bonneville's fate was was kind of hampered by uh, mining in the area. There's a lot of good uh, uh, minerals in the in the salt at Bonneville, and they've been mined for years and years. And Bonneville began to shrink up a little bit, but when we first went there, the course was uh, five miles long, and we had a five-mile shutdown area. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, it was 10 miles long, and also there was enough room to build a 10-mile circle. Also, Mickey Thompson and, and Ab Jenkins and those guys started doing endurance, endurance races where they would race for 24 hours and stuff like that. So there was a ton of room up there, but at the lakes now, they're very limited, uh, and they stopped the two-way record runs even in Bonneville they've stopped the two way you just have to run twice now in the same direction to set a record and get an average but in those days it was almost limitless why would they change it from as opposed to running one direction and then having you come back what as opposed to running you twice in the same direction well several reasons at the lakes you didn't have room we almost okay. ran out of that kind of room even when i was running my belly tank we'd even in 48 and 49 uh God, I'd go clear. I'd go as far down the lake bed as I could, which meant I was really starting to get into what we call the boonies, boondocks and sagebrush and little mounds of dirt and stuff like that. We were way off the course, but we were trying to get as long a run as possible on the return run, and that just got to be so dangerous. And then in Bonneville, the same thing. It, it, they started to lose the room to to give a guy five miles to come back. It, they just didn't have the room, so. Back in the day, in the uh, late 30s, before you went into war, who were some of the people there that made a, 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 had a, a tremendous influence on you? Um, you know, like, when I was a kid, believe it or not, reading about you and guys like Pete and, 
and Wally Parks and, you know, of course, you know, uh, Mickey Thompson. Those those were the guys that I read about, you know, because I came up in the 60s. But back in your day, who were some of the people that influenced you? Well, because of the record he set and the, the admiration everybody had for him, he, he built a little four-cylinder uh, Chevrolet, and uh, he found a bunch of different stuff in a junkyard and, and built this car himself. He He had... He put together the most amazing little engine. Uh, at the time, he had the Oldsmobile rods or no, or a, God, I mean, he put it together from junkyard stuff, and it ran so good. The Bob Rufi was probably one of my heroes, but the one that lasted from the very beginning to to his death was Vic Edelbrock. Vic Edelbrock was a hero to me right from the start. He had a wonderful black thirty-two Roadster that was was pretty traditional that you would take the windshield off and do stuff like that. And uh, he was a record holder before the war, and then he became my mentor after the war and, and helped me tremendously with all the records I set. We, we ran Edelbrock equipment on everything. How did, uh, now, was, that, was Vic Edelbrock Sr., was he building speed equipment back in those days? Because you said he was kind of an innovative kind of guy. Oh, he was very innovative. He, he did so many things that that gave him the advantage because of, he was always trying to figure out how to make an engine more efficient and everything. He, and he was, he, he went into a, a kind of a group, I wouldn't call it a partnership, but he and a guy named Thixton got together and, and built a dual manifold and, uh, for flathead Fords. And uh, there was a little, bit of, a little bit of stuff going on before the war, mostly for four-bangers. Riley and some of the four-port guys, two-port Rileys and four-port Rileys with valve overhead valves that you could bolt onto the top of a Model A or a Model B block, and uh, that was about it. The, the, the Ford V8 part of it was just barely starting, but right after the war it took off. And everybody came out, and Phil Wyan and Earl Evans and Offenhauser and Navarro, they all made stuff for the flathead now the um now that uh, that you, you said like for example uh vic edelbrock center he worked for a defense company back in the day so he had access to a lot of machine equipment and so he was kind of innovative with some of the stuff that he did and then you mentioned uh wyan as in uh most people are familiar with wine valve covers aluminum intake manifolds and things of that nature so who else was there that kind of in those early days that later ended up building you know uh high performance speed parts that that a lot of the names may be familiar to some of us that are out there listening today? Well, almost all the guys I mentioned were everybody in the industry at first. I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings back east, but everybody in the industry originally was from the Southern California area. I can't think of anybody offhand that was out of uh, our area. They later certainly became uh, builders and, and fabricators and things like that, and, and a lot of them became uh, superstars. Don Garlitz from Florida. The first time I ever heard of him, he was running a dragster called the Swamp Rat, and uh, we we out here thought his times were probably phony of what he was doing in Florida. But he he came out to a Bakersfield Fumi one time and blew everybody off. So <laughs> we, we suddenly realized that that people all over the country, Cincinnati or Cleveland or Detroit, were also catching on to this whole thing. And, of course, one of the reasons for it was the birth of Hot Rod Magazine in 1948. The articles in that magazine taught you how to do all those things that we were doing out here. All our speed seekers were suddenly nationwide. Now, who who started Hot Rod Magazine? 
Bob Peterson. Bob Peterson, okay. And then that was later became evolved into Peterson Publication, correct? Right, yeah. Okay. Well, he almost, almost immediately, believe it or not, he brought, he brought Motor Trend out just uh, just like a year later or something. His, his success was so vertical that the subscriptions to Hot Rod Magazine just flew off the shelf all of a sudden. I mean, it was... Uh, the magazine didn't, they struggled at first like we all did the first few months and stuff. And, you know, they were opening envelopes just like we all were, taking the quarter out. And you know, I, I was getting quarters in the mail for my catalog, and I'd open the envelopes at home in the living room rug. I can remember doing that. And so, but Hot Rod, they went from a few to thousands and thousands very shortly. And then Pete started this publishing empire with, uh, you know, Carcraft and all the other magazines. Was uh, Rod and Custom one of his? I don't remember because I came. Uh, not, uh, written, not originally it was yes. Oh, originally it was okay. Yeah. Before we get into that, because I know you were involved with Peterson Publication in the fifties, but tell us a little bit how the belly tanker, how it originated, how that whole story came about. Well, the origination of the belly tank was, of course, was an air airplane uh, wing tank, or in my case, a belly tank. Uh, the real story was that Bill Burke, who was in the Navy during the war, just like almost every young guy there was, uh, he saw, uh, in the South Pacific, he saw them unloading some uh, P-51 uh, wing tanks, the one on the end, end of the wings. And uh, he had been a hot rodder before the war and, and had been very innovative, but he saw these beautiful aluminum shapes that, you know, cost the Air, Air Corps a ton of money, I'm sure, he thought maybe he could get one of those after the war and build a car out of it, which he did. He he got one of the little ones first, and uh, it didn't work. He he stuck out of the car almost his entire body was sticking out of the car because the belly tank was too small. But then he found a, in a surplus store he found a a P thirty eight belly tank which was about three hundred fifty gallons, a nice large size that had plenty of room for the driver down inside and plenty of room for the engine in the back and. That's what they call the belly tank. The, the wing tanks never caught on because they were too small. But the belly tank from the P-38, which had two engines, so therefore it needed a bigger uh, auxiliary tank, and that's why it was so big. Now, then you took one, and then what would you do? You had yours powered, and then you started running the dry lakes with yours, right? Yeah, 1948, right. I started my shop in 46, and it was more or less a... Well, it was. It was just a store in those days. I thought I'd have a, a speed shop store, but... Uh, I knew right away that I had to build a car and go racing, first of all, because I wanted to, and, and and it was exciting, and all my friends and my club, they were all racing up there. But uh, more or less, we also wanted to be, have the chance to work on cars and, and build engines for customers and stuff, so that's why I built the belly tank. Bill Burke helped me tremendously get started with that. He he was Mr. Belly Tank. He, he knew exactly how to chop the frame and where to weld it together and, and make it fit. So it was almost like a template with him. So uh, we were all running Model T frames in those days. It, it didn't You didn't need a, a real strong frame for that light car, so we used as light a frame as we could, and they were available at junkyards almost for nothing. So uh, we put it together and, and uh, were very successful. We were, The SCTA had just started a new class, A, which was uh, up to 160 cubic inches, which was fit the, the Ford V860 perfectly. And the Ford V860 by then, 
in 48 was so popular in midget racing uh, that it had all the same components available, manifolds, cams, heads, pistons, everything that was available for the big motor was available for the VA60. Plus, two people could just lift it in and out of the car to work on it and stuff. It was, I, I liked that little motor, and it was fun, and so we, that's the class we ran in. Now, you went out in 49, and you set a record with that car, didn't you? No, that was a totally different car. Oh, that was a totally different car? Okay. Yeah, when we when we decided to go to Bonneville, which was a result of the dry lakes getting to be so bad that we, uh, as I mentioned, you couldn't even run two ways on a record, we thought the dry lakes would finally just turn into, you know, dust, and, and we wouldn't compete. So Pete Peterson, at that time, just this young 23-year-old kid, enlisted Wally Parks, and another gentleman with prestige, and they went up to Salt Lake City and talked to uh, the people that uh, controlled the Bonneville Salt Flats at the state level and uh, got permission for us to go up there in 1949 and run for a week on a trial basis. Uh, They didn't want to give us permanent permission because they didn't know if hot rodders would go up there and raise hell or what they might do. You know, nobody knew in those days Hot rodding had a very bad reputation, especially in that way, because the kids were street racing, and that's what started the push toward organized drag racing, get the kids off the street. But anyhow, jumping ahead, we we all went up there, and in our particular case of the shop, we wanted to do something special. I wanted to run a little more than just the V860 in the belly tank, so uh, a good friend of mine at the shop uh, suggested maybe we could go together and build a streamlined body, a real streamlined body, an enclosed body like some of the record uh, record holders from Europe, uh, Cobb and and people like that, that, that used those bodies. Nobody was using that kind of an approach at the lakes. Everybody had the wheels sticking out in the wind. And, uh, of course, nobody knew the terrible turbulence those wheels were creating until we enclosed ours and ran so fast that the the birth of the streamliner took off like crazy at Bonneville. There's so many bought so many records now at Bonneville, and so many streamliner classes. And Mickey Thompson, uh, of course, was the ultimate with that 400 mile an hour run. And uh, the rest is kind of history, as they say. Now, is it true that you guys were able to obtain some information from the Audi Auto Union uh, car that raced in Europe on the uh, Munich Autobahn, and you incorporated some of that technology into your streamliner? Well, that's what really sparked the the thing. We had we had some kind of positive proof in print that that this thing really worked. We we knew that uh, some of the European cars had gone fast, but we didn't know anything about wind tunnel tests or anything like that. But it was in this book. It was a that was part of Dean's knowledge was that Dean had this book of Auto Union and uh, what they did with their Grand Prix cars and racing against Mercedes before the war. That was Hitler's idea of trying to prove to the world that Germany was first in everything. They built some incredible race cars. and and uh, So anyhow, it, 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 it had the wind tunnel tests on this car in that magazine, and they, they took a Grand Prix car that had the wheels ex- outside like our belly tank. Look, in fact, Auto Union ran rear engines with the driver up front. They were the only ones to do that in, in Grand Prix, but it, it looked just like a belly tank, sort of. So anyhow, the wind tunnel tests by putting the bigger body around the wheels, they increased the frontal area by 50% and made the car literally bigger, 
which normally you wouldn't want to do. But on the other hand, in the wind tunnel, it reduced the wind resistance by 50%. So uh, even though you made it bigger, it was way, way more efficient. And that caught our eye, and it, it was such an obvious thing that that's what we decided to do for Bonneville. We would build this enclosed body, and we took the belly tank body off, and we did that over the chassis of the belly tank. So I no longer had a belly tank car, and now I had a streamlined car. Then uh, And then you ran that car, what, 1949 and 1950? You set two records with that car, correct? Well, we still ran the little V860 in, oh, okay. in it. And, uh, yeah, it, our record at, at Bonneville, at, at El Mirage, was uh, about 136 miles an hour with the with the V860. And up there we went 156, and everybody was stunned. And, and it ended up being the second fastest time of the meet with our little V860, so... We were stunned too. We we were hot rod kids. We, you know, we we read a book and we knew that streamlining was important, but we didn't know it. It never gave the percentage of of speed increase. So anyhow, we're we're out on a limb up there, not knowing exactly what to do, and not knowing if the car lifted a certain speed because we did the best we could aerodynamically, but we didn't have any help doing the body. So, but we took along a. Vic Edelbrock helped us with a with a big motor, even though I I didn't have one, so he he gave us his to run, and uh, yeah, the the record at the lakes had just become 160. That was uh, Bill Burke's car, and it was a belly tank and 160, and that was the hot, fastest hot rod, and that's what we were trying to be. We we weren't trying to be record holders outside of hot rod. We just wanted to be the fastest hot rod that ever ran. And, Anyhow, we ended up at 193 on our last run, and uh, so we increased the hot rod record 33 miles an hour, and, and not only shocked everybody else, but shocked ourselves. We were just, we were stunned. I mean, the the, the, the hot rod record had gone up like at a mile an hour at a time for, for months and months and years and years, so all of a sudden, whammo. And then the, the next year, we... We did a little more to the body and tried to make it a little more. And, of course, we increased the horsepower in a year, as, as everybody was doing. And the next year, in 50, we went uh, 210 miles an hour. So that was, uh, it turned out to be, and we didn't know it at the time, but later we found out that actually that was an American land speed record. There was a, a car called the Triplex that had run at Daytona with three aircraft engines that held the American speed record at 206. and. At Bonneville, we averaged a little over 208. So, but mainly we were the fastest hot rod. That was that's what counted at SoCal Speed Shop. What? Uh, who actually drove these cars? Now, did you actually pilot these cars yourself, or did you have a driver? I drove the belly tank, and then I had a a, a daughter born, and so I thought I should get out of the car. I did take one test run in the in the Streamliner Bonneville 180, but I didn't I didn't drive anymore. And then uh, Dean drove it, and then. He he didn't drive anymore after the original Bonneville. So one of our other friends named Bill Daly drove the car. Okay. Now how did how did you come up with the idea for SoCal Speed Shop back in right after you got out of the war? What uh, was that something that was on your mind there for a while? How'd that all come about? Well, I was getting into it pretty heavily before the war. I, I did not run the lakes, but I drove up and watched the guys, and I kind of went a little more toward a, a custom type. Uh, car. There was a guy across the street from my high school named Jimmy Summers, and at the time he was the, the finest fabricator and customizer around, and 
he built some incredible cars before the war, chopped and channeled 36 coupes and stuff that, that you know, barely caught on years later that anybody had the ability to do what he did. But anyhow, I, I ended up before the war with a, with a series of 34s. I had a 34 three-window black that uh, was really a nice car, and then I ended up with a 34 Cabriolet that I chopped the windshield on and, and got a Carson top put on it, which was, in those days was just the ultimate thing anybody could do in town with a, with a custom was to finally end up with a top from Carson on it. And uh, it was a beautiful car and uh, had Oldsmobile headlights and all kinds of custom stuff on it. So I kept that car all during the war. It was jacked up at home, of course, and and uh, after the war. But finally, in, in 48, uh, 47, when I decided to go racing, I sold that custom and and put all my money into the belly tank. And then you started, the, is that when you started the speed shop, too, at the same time? Oh, or I, a little yeah, I'm sorry. I, there's so much we're talking about. <laughs> so much, we're going over so many years. <laughs> well, that's what I want you to do. I want you to take us back right. in time. I mean, that's... that's uh, Anyhow, it's, because I was involved in hot rodding before the war and, and, and really enjoyed it and and could see that I'd like to participate in it after the war, I uh, I just kept thinking about it. And, of course, all the Southern California hot rod kids were showing their friends around the country and around the world, of course, at that time, pictures of their Southern California hot rods. And I I think that that sparked a lot of interest in, in kids around the country when they got out because they had seen and, and were interested in the stories we told them about our hot rods. So, anyhow, I... I had no business experience. I'd just gotten out of high school before the war, and, and uh, but I just thought I, somehow I wanted to be in business for myself and that I would really like to have a speed shop. And uh, Carl Orr had coined that phrase, and I, I couldn't think of a better name for a high-performance business than speed shop. My God. That, so anyhow, I just called it SoCal Speed Shop and opened it the the day I got out of the service, the mustering out in those days, that took you quite a while to get discharged because uh, millions of us were getting out virtually within a few months of each other, and it, the the centers where you could get your discharge were just full up. I go down uh, every week uh, to the discharge center, and they'd send me home and come back again. And so I was out. Of the, I was still in the service, but I but I was home every day. And so I found a shop in Burbank and and start building my shelves and everything. So by the time I finally got out in March of 46, I was ready to go. So I opened Speed Shop the, the day I got out. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was fun and uh, very risky, and, and uh, I struggled many, many months and everything to get it going. But fortunately, it finally started going. What were some of the first products that you sold and some of the first things you did? Well, at first it was more or less cosmetic stuff that you could put on and make your roadster or your car kind of look like a hot rod. It was acorn head nuts and carburetor stacks chromed and chrome pipes that you could put in uh, with your with your water hoses and anything to to make it, it better. I also had made friends with all the Ford uh, parts guys in the valley, and whenever they'd get a shipment of 16-inch steel wheels, I'd go and they'd, they'd let me have them all. And uh, so I was selling things like 16-inch Ford steel wheels and uh, sold a tremendous amount of Stuart Warner gauges. I, it, everybody 
could afford an oil pressure gauge or a, and a few guys could afford a tachometer and they put them in and it made your car look like a hot rod and, and yet you hadn't spent hundreds of dollars on anything yet so that was the kind of stuff at first then Edelbrock and Wyan and all the companies I mentioned began to make the heads and manifolds and uh, that was the ultimate thing if you bolted a set of finned aluminum heads on your hot rod you had a hot rod, and, and everybody admired it, and it looked like a hot rod. You maybe still didn't have a cam in it or pistons or anything, but you, you had a hot rod. and uh, The prices weren't too bad. You could get a, manif- a dual manifold for 29 or $39. So the guys were all starting to work, you know, now. they were A lot of them became uh, construction workers, uh, plasters, carpenters, and they were building hundreds and hundreds of homes in the valley and stuff for the veterans. So uh, they were starting to make money on their own and and starting to spend it uh, on their hot rods. Now, you know, it's funny, you know, you're working on the, you're doing the, you started out doing with the flathead, and then, of course, the overhead valve motor came in, you know, and then now here it is, 60, 70 years later almost, did you ever in your mind think that the flathead would be as popular today as it was back in the 40s and 50s? Well, of course, in, when I had the shop, if somebody had told me, you know, we had we had Chevrolets and, and other overhead valve uh, engines, but because the V8 was a V8 and it ran so smoothly, uh, you could balance it so perfectly, and it just struck home with everybody. And uh, there were a few guys like Wayne Hornin. He developed heads for the Chevrolet uh, six-cylinder that was overhead that breathed properly and, and produced a lot of horsepower. But even as successful as that engine was, not many guys went to it. it speaking of shocks, am I shocked about it, the hot rod being popular now? What shocked me most was how quickly the hot rod went away and how many people went out of business. Uh, a lot of the guys never recovered. Uh, even, even somebody as... as adapt as Vic Edelbrock, they had trouble uh, designing and getting excited about making manifolds and stuff for for Chevrolets and things. It, it took people a little while to realize what had happened, and the flathead just went away virtually overnight, and it did the same thing at the lakes and at Bonneville. The, all the flathead le- records just disappeared within a year or so, and... Uh, in fact, the last engine I built, I was still such a stubborn Ford guy. The last engine I built still had a Ford block, but it was an overhead valve Arden. So I saw what was happening. In fact, it was a blown Arden. I, I realized that uh, along with the Streamliner Auto Union body, I also began to realize how important supercharging was. and It also doubled the horsepower. So uh, anyhow, that's the blown Arden was in my last hot rod, so... Uh, but in answer to your question, I think the most shocking thing to me is, is even more that the flathead's popular again is that you can spend seven hundred dollars on a set of flatheads. I mean, <laughs> I mean that that is shocking to me. That is totally shocking. I when Kong Jackson brought out the Kong dual point ignition, it was really popular and, and a very good ignition for flatheads. And it went away too when the when the overheads came out because it was a total different concept of, of bolting an ignition on. And uh, 
when he went back in the service in the Korean War, I bought the ignition from him, and we made him for quite a while, and we always had run the Kong. Well, a friend of mine named Dan Webb is currently recreating our streamliner, which was totally demolished at Daytona, but that's another story. But he's, he's recreating my original streamliner, and he's finding and buying parts that we used. And the other day he told me he paid $2,500 for a Kong ignition. We sold them for thirty nine ninety five, and <laughs> so in addition to being surprised at the popularity of the hot rod, I'm more amazed at how much it costs to build one. Well, hey, Alex, uh, we're just about out of time, but I want to. Th- we didn't get a chance to cover all the stuff, but would you be willing to come on the show again and do? We'll do like a part two or part three of uh, an interview segment sure, with you. Sure, there's a lot more to to talk about the growth of Peterson, especially, and and how young he was when he started and how successful he was when he ended up and uh yeah and what's happening in the industry it's it's a huge huge industry now and the sema show is over a million square feet of parts Wow. All exciting things. So, yes, I'd be happy to. Okay, well, I want to thank you for coming on to our show tonight. I want to thank our guest, uh, Alex Exidius, the originator and the founder of SoCal. Great stories. Alex, you take care of yourself. Thank you for coming on the show. I want to thank my guest, Chris, for showing up this evening. And uh, be sure, just do a little quick plug for Crown Auction. Well, yeah, the, Alex, first I'd love to say that thank you so much for all the memories. And uh, I hope to see you at our upcoming auction this October in Florida. We're going to good be luck, there the 14th and the 15th. Auction. They're very exciting. I love going to those things. Okay, well, you're invited. Yeah, we are invited. Thank 20 seconds. Come. We're out of here. All right, everybody, tune in to Nostalgic Radio Cars next week, same time, 7 o'clock every Wednesday. We're out of here, guys. Drive carefully, stay safe, and take care of your families. Dug our treasures there. I still recall the time we cried. Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side. WDCF, Dade City, Zephyr Hills and Wesley Chapel, and KLRG, Sheridan, Little Rock, Arkansas.